Hello and welcome to the Kitchen Table Theology Podcast, where each week, Pastor Jeff Cranston explores biblical theology that provides practical life applications in an understandable way. Thanks for joining us at the table. Let's get started. Hello and welcome to Kitchen Table Theology. I'm your host, Tiffany Coker, along with my dad, Pastor Jeff Cranston. We're seeking not only to help you know deep, solid biblical theology, but to know the word of God and the promises of God that are given to us in his word, all while holding to solid theological truths in your heart, soul, and mind. We are currently working our way through the Bible Overview series, almost halfway there. So beginning back with episode number 143, we have discussed and studied several different Old and New Testament books and their theological themes. If you've missed any, we encourage you to go back and give those a listen. But for today, Dad, good morning. Why don't you go ahead and get us started? Hey, everybody. Good to, let's say, I was going to say good to see you again, but that's not really true, is it? It's good, <laughs> good to be with you again, I think would be the, the way to go. Hey, to begin today, I've got some Bible jokes oh, for good. you. They're horrible. They're terrible. They're groan-inducing, but maybe you'll get a chuckle out of them. Are you ready? I'm ready. Let's do this. Okay. Well, humor is very biblical. This isn't a joke. Psalm 126.2 says, our mouths were filled with laughter. So I cannot promise that will happen with these jokes, but let's have a go anyway. Okay. So who was the greatest financier in the Bible? Who was the greatest? Oh, by the way, this is not a quiz. I say, am I supposed to try to answer these? (laughs) No. Who was the greatest financier in the Bible? That was Noah. He was floating his stock while everyone else was in liquidation. (laughs) That is terrible. (laughs) What kind of man was Boaz before he got married? That's easy. He was ruthless. He was without Ruth, of course. Ruthless. I've always liked this one. I have two answers for this one, but I'll only give one. What kind of car is mentioned in the Bible? Oh, I've heard this one. It's a Honda. Because Acts 2.12 says Jesus' followers were all in one accord. <laughs> yes, I think when I got my first car, you yeah. told us that joke because it was a Honda. <laughs> it was a Honda <laughs> Accord. That's right. This one's old. Most of us have heard this one. Where's the first baseball game mentioned in the Bible? Oh, I do know this one. In it, the beginning. In the beginning. <laughs> but there's a secondary part to that. Eve stole first. Adam stole second. So (laughs) that's more proof that baseball is in the Bible. I'm trying to cut these these out as as I'm going here. I like this one. How do we know that Job went to a chiropractor? How do we know Job went to a chiropractor? Well, in, in Job 16, 12, it says, all was well with me, but he seized me by the neck. So obviously he was at a chiropractor. This was an, this is an old one. Where is the first tennis match mentioned in the Bible? And that would be in Genesis, where we're told that Joseph served in Pharaoh's court. So, yeah, that's horrible. Okay, (laughs) gratefully, thankfully, here's the last one. Who may have been the shortest man mentioned in the Bible? Well, there are three possibilities. One we know pretty rarely, probably, if you know your New Testament. Zacchaeus would be one. He was so short, you remember he had to climb a tree to see Jesus. And then in back to Job again, one of his 
three friends mentioned was Bildad the shoe height, the shoe height. So <laughs> shoe height. very short <laughs> shoe height. And then <clears throat> the other one is Nehemiah. Wow. So, well, yeah, those are horrible. That's the pastor version of dad jokes right there. <laughs> yeah. But I'm guessing you put that last one in there today, Nehemiah, because we are going to look at the Old Testament book of Nehemiah. So, right. Dad, why don't we really begin today with the basics of the book like we usually do? I think we can probably guess by the book's name who wrote it, but why don't you fill us in on a few more basics as well? Yeah, I'll be glad to do that, and I promise no more no more pastor dad jokes. <laughs> so, ne- Nehemiah was, in fact, the author, and he writes from a first-person viewpoint Throughout a large portion of the book, we don't know much about his early years. We don't know a whole lot about his background. We only know him as an adult working as King Artaxerxes' personal cupbearer. So he drank every drink before the king did in case there was poison. So sort of a stressful job, I guess. And so this was in the Persian royal court. And it was a rather esteemed role. It was a role of high trust, obviously. So that provides us a little bit of insight into Nehemiah's moral nature. He was a trustworthy man. He was very interested in the situation in Judah, even though he stayed and he lived in Persia, even after the Jewish exiles were permitted to return home to Jerusalem and the outer environs there. the, The book of Nehemiah could be read also as a sequel to the book of Ezra. And some scholars actually believe that Ezra and Nehemiah as Bible books were originally one work. Okay. But that we're not 100% sure on that. All right. You mentioned King Artaxerxes and the Persian royal court. So tell us a little bit, where are we exactly in biblical history? When does all of this take place? You mentioned it's a sequel to Ezra, but fill us in there. Yeah, that's a Good question. The beginning of the book takes place in 444 BC. So we're that many years before before Jesus in the Persian city of Susa, S-U-S-A, Susa. Now, Susa is known to be one of the oldest cities in world history. Archaeologically, it's dated to be about 7,000 years old. It was located in what is now Southwest Iran. Nehemiah led the third of the Jewish people's three returns to Israel uh, later that year in 444 after they had been exiled in Babylon for 70 years. Now, we've talked in previous podcasts about the Babylonian captivity and so forth. And so when they were allowed to return to their homeland, there were three returns. Nehemiah led the third. So kitchen table theologian, you may recall the first two returns are talked about in the book of Ezra. And when we get to Nehemiah's book, it's the majority of that are, are talked of, he's talking about various events in Jerusalem itself. And the scholars assume the book was composed soon after all of those circumstances and events ended, which places it around the date of the book, around 430 BC. All right. That's very helpful. We know. You just told us that Nehemiah follows Ezra in the Old Testament. 
But is its placing significant at all? It might be helpful. We're kind of in the middle of the Old Testament here. So it might be helpful mm -hmm. to give us all a brief reminder of the layout of the Old Testament. When we did our intro, maybe I'll say to the Bible overview, we learned that there are 39 books of the Old Testament divided into four general categories. So the books of the law, which we call the Pentateuch or the Torah, which we have covered all of those in past episodes, the historical books, the poetic books, and the prophetic books. Yep, that's good. And we've covered the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Old Testament. And I, I think it's worth saying that we're almost at the end of the historical book section. Actually, we are at the end of the historical book section. We, we know that the book of Esther follows Nehemiah. So in the Bible, the way that it's laid out, Esther would end the historical books. But we also know that the events of the book of Esther took place between Ezra chapter 6 and chapter 7. Esther takes place during the first and second returns of the people to Israel. So even though the book is positioned after Nehemiah in the scriptural canon, we can rightly say that chronologically, Nehemiah is the last historical book. It might also interest us to know that the prophet Malachi, he was a contemporary of Nehemiah. So you've got, you've got Esther, Nehemiah, Ezra, Malachi, all contemporaries of one another. We covered a lot there. Hopefully that didn't confuse you, kitchen table theologian. I know it's a lot and can get muddled from time to time, but hopefully that was helpful in clarifying a little bit about where we are in the history and chronological order. But let's get back to the book. Why is the book of Nehemiah important? I confused everyone and muddled everything all up. Is that not, what I heard you? Yeah. Not at all. Yeah. That's, I think, what I, I think that's pretty much what you said. But yeah, okay, so back to the book. I, I, it's good to know, I think, for us that Nehemiah was a layman. He was not a priest. Ezra was a priest. Nehemiah wasn't. Malachi was a prophet. Nehemiah was not a prophet. So he was a layman. He worked in the royal palace in the king's court in Susa in Persia for King Artaxerxes. So before gathering, going back to the third return of Jews, to Jerusalem before gathering a company of Jewish people to restore the city walls of Jerusalem, which is that's what the whole book's about, the rebuilding of the walls. He held this secular job serving the Persian monarch. Now, Bible scholar, Dr. Norman Geisler, who I have known about for, I guess, 40 years, read him a lot through my studies. He wrote this, Nehemiah was well-prepared for the political and physical reconstruction required for the remnant to survive due to his experience in the king's court. And along with Ezra, who's also featured in the book of Nehemiah, he worked to strengthen the people's political and spiritual base. Uh, he, he said, Nehemiah did, he set an example for the people with his humility before God. I mean, if you just look at the prayers of chapter one and chapter nine that he prayed, just such heartfelt intercessory prayers, it gives you a lot of insight into his humility. And he provided a great example for the Jewish people. He did not claim glory for himself, but he always gave God the credit for his successes. That gives us some really great background information on the book and a little bit of Nehemiah. We This is kitchen table theology, so we better discuss what is the major theological theme of the book. What is it all about? Or maybe well, it's start all... with giving us the theme of the book, and then let's discuss theological themes. How's that? Yeah, well, what I can do here, the important job of rebuilding the wall 
surrounding Jerusalem, which in those days was absolutely vital for security. When building walls are still in the news today, every day, aren't they? But so mm-hmm. the major theme is they're rebuilt. He's rebuilding the wall surrounding Jerusalem, which is just a reminder, the capital city of Judah. And Nehemiah documented all that. So together, he and Ezra oversaw a, a spiritual awakening among the Jewish people. They oversaw the political return, the religious return of the Jews to their ancestral land. This is the promised land. And remember, they have, they've been in captivity in Babylon for 70 years. So that's come to an end and they're allowed to return. And just as an aside, every leader would be very wise to study this book. The life of Nehemiah is a valuable case study in leadership. I know one thing that I've learned about it is every 30 day, about every 30 days, he recasts the vision before the people. Here's what we're doing. Here's why we're doing it. You, you see him constantly recasting and reminding people of the vision, why we're doing what we're doing. He overcame opposition from the outside. He overcame opposition from the inside. He showed off his administrative skills in chapters four and five when he assigned half the people to work on building and the other half to keep an eye out for any Samaritans who might pose a threat. The Jews were very displeased with Persian taxation, and they reached a solution through Nehemiah's mediation. He showed a resolute dedication in accomplishing the goals that they had of rebuilding. And when they achieved those goals, the, the Hebrew people were energized and rejuvenated and, and full of hope for the future. And so you see a good leader always offers his or her followers a picture of a better future. And Nehemiah not only offered it, he helped them to reach that with God's help. And as I said before, he always gave God the glory for it. I feel like this is a book that would make a really good movie. <laughs> yeah, it would. Uh- Let's get to the theological themes that we find in the book. What are a few of those? Well, I think one that immediately jumps out is prayer. Both Ezra and Nehemiah are men of prayer. The Ezra and Nehemiah prayers that you can read begin with the pronoun I, just I statements that quickly move to we statements, showing us how closely they identified with their people. There's also a prayer in Nehemiah 9 which was prayed by the priestly class. So those were the Levites. So you, ha- you have that prayer in there as well. Nehemiah frequently prays during this intensifying opposition to his mission that he experienced, because there was a lot of that going on as, as well. When he first heard, when he was back in Susa, when he first heard of the sorry state of Jerusalem in chapter one, he immediately, his first response is prayer. And that's what started this whole project to rebuild the walls. Another theme we find, and we see this in so many of the Old Testament books, is the providential hand of God. I feel like I've mentioned this probably at least a half a dozen times as a Mm -hmm. theological theme in other books, but it's that's what it is, the providential hand of God. And Nehemiah actually claims, and I'll just quote him, that the hand of God, end quote, was upon them. He he uses that phrase on more than one occasion, the hand of God. And he's saying God's directing everything we're trying to accomplish. And that also becomes another way of speaking of God's grace, since God's hand is usually nudging those around the Jewish community to provide for them 
and caring way. So you've got the providential hand of God. You see the grace of God. Finally, I think something we find in a reading of Nehemiah is his frequent request of God to remember him. He's, he's, he says that a lot to God, that he, he wanted to be remembered by God. And in a reference book I have on my shelf called A Biblical Theology of the Old Testament, Dr. Eugene Merrill points out that that fact that Nehemiah is always asking God to remember him. Well, wh- why would Nehemiah ask that of God? And he asks it often. And, and I think in this, in, in terms of a theological theme, we see in Nehemiah's awareness of God's judgment upon sin. The wreckage of Jerusalem, and things were a mess when he got there. That was really just constant reminder, this constant silent testimony of the walls being broken down, the city being in shambles, that God is not mocked what a man sows, he will reap. And it's in the context of Judah's backsliding that Nehemiah's prayer for remembrance become most frequent and insistent. So recognizing the human proneness to wander from God, his prayer for God's remembrance, I think is him sort of, it's an implied request for God's preserving work in his own life so that, and here's the key here, he might indeed be remembered for what he did in the final judgment. And it it seems to be, he's saying, don't let me, don't let me turn out like Jerusalem. That, That seems to be in his heart and mind. Interesting. How does Nehemiah asking God to remember him, how does that become a theological theme? Something well, for I us think, to learn from. I think it's an eschatology theme, an end times theme, that one day all of this will be over as we know it, that Christ will return, humanity will be judged, and eternal wars and punishment will be meted out by Almighty God. And Nehemiah is cognizant of that fact. And so realizing that there is a judgment that he will face one day, I think you've got an eschatological and theological theme in, in that prayer to please remember me. Well, there we go, kitchen table theologian. Thanks so much for listening today. Hope you learned a little bit about Nehemiah. I know I did. If you are enjoying this podcast, would you consider leaving a rating or a review on iTunes? We really, or Apple Music, Apple Podcasts, whatever it's called these days. <laughs> We really do appreciate your help in getting the word out. Be sure to subscribe wherever you're listening so you can continue the journey with us and not miss out on anything. Don't forget you can check out today's episode notes and more at jeffcranston.com. You can also email us anytime, any questions you have, Jeff at lowcountrycc.org. As always, thanks are due to our friends at Lowcountry Community Church here in Bluffton, South Carolina and at Streamline Podcast for making this podcast possible. Next week, we will be continuing our Bible overview series with a look at the New Testament book of 2 Timothy. Until then, always remember that the real power of theology is not only knowing it, but applying it. Thanks for joining us at the table. You've been listening to the Kitchen Table Theology Podcast with Pastor Jeff Cranston. Join us next time for more insights into biblical truth. If you'd like to know more on today's topic, please check out our show notes. If you have a question from today's podcast, kindly email us at pastorjeff at lowcountrycc.org. If you're enjoying this podcast, would you consider leaving a rating and review? We deeply appreciate your help in getting the word out. And be sure to subscribe on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, or in your favorite podcasting app to continue this journey with us as we learn about and apply God's word to our lives. Thanks for joining us, and we'll see you next time here at Kitchen Table Theology.